Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It wasn't that long ago I was on the air with you all, and I'm glad to be back on the air, like I always am, with you all, my faithful fellow 101 listeners. Well, I will admit that we're um, almost at the end of this series, signing their rights away, the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the United States Constitution. And after this episode, we will have uh, two more episodes left of this series. But I must say that it has been a phenomenal ride, and I hope all of you who have been faithfully listening to this series have come away with a better appreciation for the men who whom did make the ultimate sacrifices, not just by signing a document that still remains intact for just over 233 years, but coming together in the most trying of circumstances, knowing that, hey, they had to get it right this time, because if they didn't get it right in 1787 while in Philadelphia, who's to say that the United States as a nation might no longer have existed? So it was one thing to come together in Philadelphia, but as we have learned, coming home to their respective states. We may not have learned everything about what the what the selling was like in the states in terms of selling it to the uh, constituents and the delegates debating at their conventions. However, they all did come together even with thin razor margin votes. The bottom line is, folks, is that I hope all of you who have been listening to this um, podcast series on signing their rights away do um, realize what sacrifices were made. And that for those who may not have been on the same level as a Benjamin Franklin or a Roger Sherman, men like Nathaniel Gorham of Massachusetts, men like um, William Patterson of New Jersey, men like James McHenry of Maryland, John Blair Jr. of Virginia, for example, just to name a few of the forgotten signers, those men too laid it all on the line. And I would, and it's very fair to say that all 39 signers who signed laid everything on the line regardless of their status. Yes, there were those who were of high ranking status in society, most notably the Rutledges and the Pinckneys from South Carolina, but you take men like William Patterson whom didn't come from a whole lot, from New Jersey. Um, men like John Langdon of um, New Hampshire, who may not have come from the greatest level of money, just to name a few. But in the end, they all found ways to attain connections throughout their lives to get to where they got to by the time they were called upon to serve their respective states as delegates to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. So, what state are we going to talk about next? Well, we talked about South Carolina. And then from late last week, we talked about North Carolina. And then we talked about Virginia. So isn't it fair to say we've been talking about the South? We've talked about the Upper South, Virginia, and North Carolina. Then we started with the Lower South being South Carolina. Well, are we going to be talking about Florida? Are we going to be talking about Alabama? Or are we going to be talking about Georgia? Why do I mention those three states? Well, how ironic that all three of those states do border one another. You know, if you look on the map, Pensacola, Florida, borders borders Alabama where you get into what's called Mobile, Alabama. Georgia is um, the southernmost parts of Georgia touch uh, areas um, smack dab in the middle of Pensacola and um like Pensacola, for example, and then you've got um, parts of Georgia that are not far from present-day Jacksonville, Florida. So, our lead-off bonus question is the following. Which southern state became the first to ratify the U.S. Constitution? Well, we all, we all should know in 1787 that Florida is not a state, although it's called the Territory of Florida. The Spanish are in possession of it. Alabama is still under... Indian control. So, if Alabama and Florida are eliminated, 
the southern state that became the first to ratify the U.S. Constitution was none other than Georgia, being the furthest of all 13 states. That is quite a big milestone, in my opinion, for Georgia to be the first of the southern states to ratify the U.S. Constitution. You know, we learned uh, from the previous night, South Carolina was the eighth state. Virginia was the tenth. Uh, and Virginia followed shortly after New Hampshire. And North Carolina held out up until late 1789, all in part because they didn't like the fact that there had not been a Bill of Rights included in the Constitution two years earlier, but luckily in the end, the delegates came to their senses and realized, you know what, the longer we hold out, uh, the the greater uh, the problems there might be down the road. So they were smart enough to just put aside their personal desires and just go, at, go forward with ratifying the document. Well, how many uh, delegates from Georgia attended the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia? Was it more than four? Or was it less than four? Or was it none of the above? Well, the answer would be none of the above in terms of greater than four or less than four, but the answer is four delegates attended Georgia. From uh, Four delegates from Georgia attended the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. Whom is the first delegate we're going to be learning about? His name is William Few. And yes, his last name is spelled F-E-W, few, meaning small, less, opposite of large or, or bigger. But nonetheless, William Few was born on June the 8th, 1748. But let me ask you this, was he born in Georgia? In other words, is he a native to Georgia? The answer is no. He was born in Baltimore County, Maryland. So I'm sure many of you are beginning to wonder how in the world did he end up how in the world did he and his family end up settling in Georgia or how did William himself decide to come southward to Georgia? Well, let's keep this in mind first. When William Few is born in June of 1748, given that he's born in Maryland, Georgia is as a state is it's the last of the 13 colonies to have been settled. Georgia was settled between 1732 and 1733 by James Oglethorpe. James Oglethorpe um, established the colony really as a um, haven for uh, not just debtors whom were wanting to start a new life, but those whom had been sentenced in England and were um, pretty much released on the condition that by going to Georgia, they would pay off their years of um, of um, what we call prison time that uh, that carried over into the new world. So in other words, many of these um, prisoners would have been the equivalent of indentured servants almost. They were working off a certain number of years that they had on their um, contract status before before officially becoming free men to where they could own X number of acres of land and be able to plot their own farms. That's just a basic 101 um, description of how Georgia went about getting um, established. But as for William Few, he was not born into money. And we should keep in mind, and we have learned, that, if, that some of our uh, forefathers who signed the Constitution did not come from grand estates. They did not come from well-to-do families, but that's okay. At the same time, we have learned that many of these men who didn't come from from uh, well-to-do families still turned out all right and made a name for themselves. William Few's father was a Quaker, whereas his mother was a Catholic. Now that's an interesting uh, combination right there. Very seldomly, well, I guess history has proven that um, husband and wife in certain marriages did come from different uh, religions, but yet they still um, managed to have good marriages. I know uh, Patrick Henry, we've learned from uh, when my wife and I have gone to Williamsburg, we've learned that Patrick Henry's uh, parents were of uh, different religious faiths. I believe that his uh, father was uh, of the Anglican Church and his mother was uh, Presbyterian. But um, William Few, given that he wasn't born into money, he received a minimal education 
as his parents lacked financial means to send him off to school. However, uh, the family does get a um, break in that uh, by the time William reaches the age of 10, his, he and his family move south to North Carolina. Not South Carolina, but North Carolina. So we could say that maybe the Few family is halfway to where they will eventually settle in what we now know as Georgia. Did William Few's family have better success in North Carolina versus Maryland? Well, we've already established that he didn't, that he had minimal education in uh, Maryland, but the answer is yes for being in North Carolina that William Few's family did have better success, um, especially considering that young William received better education opportunities. Okay, having the right connections, not only with tutors, but tutors giving you access to other means to pursue not only your interests, but to grow and expand your knowledge. Yeah, if you have those kinds of connections, then yes, um, the chances of, adva of advancement will be a lot stronger versus where, he, where you had been before. By age 19, though, William's father gave him his own plot of land to work. Now, for some of us, that might not seem like a big deal, but you know what? Just to be, just to have received maybe 20 acres at best, and to be able to, to work that land, even if it was just for 20 or 25 acres, my gosh, that's better than nothing. You know, most families, those who are at the low end of the spectrum of the um, class system, may have been lucky if they had five acres of land. But I will tell you this, not everybody was lucky enough just to even have 25 acres at best for a, min for a minimum. Uh, did the Few family reside in North Carolina's backcountry, or what we call the frontier region? Because I'm, I'm sure some of you all are wondering, okay, they moved to North Carolina, but whereabouts are they living in North Carolina? So the answer that, to that question is yes, the Few family is residing in North Carolina's backcountry. Now, you know, we all sometimes get this assumption that frontier life was so simple, laid back, getting away from all the hustle and bustle of the um, mercantile life that the coastal uh, cities took on. But I've got to admit, folks, frontier life is not simple either. People don't have time to live the simple life. You know, it's one thing to live out on the frontier, but what would you have to be uh, worried about? How about Indian raids? You know, Indians coming from... Um, the opposite end and uh, plundering your villages and massacring people. I'm not saying that to pick on Indians. I'm not doing that. But but what we have to remember is that the backcountry didn't always provide a haven for people. There were there were conflicts in the in South Carolina's upper country or what we call their backcountry amongst um, amongst the Europeans and the Indians. And, that, and it was prevalent even in western North Carolina. But during this time, though, that the Few family is living on the frontier region, or a.k.a. the backcountry, this region becomes a hostile environment. Not just It, it doesn't involve um, Indians uh, amongst the Europeans. It is a, an, a hostile situation that in, that's known as the regula regulatory movement. And why is it called the regulatory movement? The regulatory movement was a, um, a conflict involving those whom were regulators, meaning they were non-gentry people. They weren't at the upper crust or upper classes of society. These people opposed everything that the landed gentry represented. And if you were a part of the landed gentry, what should that automatically entail? that you are privileged, you have access to just about everything. And of course the regulators probably see many of the uh, landed gentry people as stuck up, snooty, don't really care about the people below them. All they care about is themselves, I, me, myself. The regulators are, uh, are the opposite, us, we, ourselves. But the regulators pretty much oppose the ruling gentry whom controlled North Carolina's financial sources, or let alone resources. So is it, it's probably fair to say that the landed gentry benefited from everything, like a tax break. 
they benefited from from just from really anything that the state legislature passed because think about it the landed gentry are the ones who control vast properties they probably have much more to invest in and they are the ones that are reaping the award the rewards more so than the regulators which are the working class people and William Fuse family is involved in this war of the regulation the war the battle that pretty much uh, puts the war of the regulation to an end came in 1771 one year after the infamous Boston massacre took place it was known as the Battle of Alamance you know interesting I, I know about Alamance uh, County in North Carolina um, my father had an aunt and uncle whom he loved very dearly whom lived in Alamance County for a number of years um, in a place called Burlington. And uh, Burlington was at the heart of the uh, textile industry for a number of years. And I remember as a young child uh, when my family and I would be coming home from uh, Hilton Head, South Carolina, we would always stop in um, Alamance County uh, where my great aunt um, lived in Burlington. Um, and, uh, and those were always good times and all, but uh, those are my memories of uh, stopping in uh, what we call Alamance uh, County. But anyways, um, most of you all probably don't know that there was a battle known as the Battle of Alamance, which was this war's climactic battle. The governor at the time was Governor William Tryon, and there is a place in North Carolina named Tryon after Governor William Tryon. That's spelled T-R-Y-O-N. He led the way in assisting the colonial militia with putting down a force of 2,000 regulators, which included capturing and hanging William Few's brother. One of his brothers, sadly, was captured and hanged. So it's one thing to take up uh, arms against the opposition, which the regulators did, but it didn't mean that everyone who survived came home alive. Many of them were captured, and if they were released, that was probably an act of God right there, but not everyone um, was lucky, And but sadly William's brother was one of those men who laid it on the line, but sadly uh, died, but yet he probably died for something that he thought was truly justifiable. In the aftermath of the War of the Regulation, William would stay behind in North Carolina to settle all of his family's affairs, whereas the remaining family migrated southward, not to South Carolina, but to Georgia. So if the rest of his family has migrated southward to Georgia, what about William? Is he going to stay put in North Carolina, or is he going to go to Georgia? Well, he did go to Georgia. He moved to Georgia just in time to where he could lend a long-term role behind the movement for independence. You know, Georgia, for those of you who were with me when we discussed a year ago signing their lives away about the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the, who signed the Declaration of Independence, why was Georgia different at first? Well, come 1774, when the First Continental Congress convened in Philadelphia, Georgia didn't send any delegates. How so? Or why did they not show up? Because Georgia is fighting a war with the Creek Indian Nation. And who would Georgia need arms? They need arms from somebody. I mean, Massachusetts isn't going to give them arms. Virginia isn't. Neither is um, Pennsylvania, but I know Massachusetts and Virginia wouldn't. England, after all, Georgia still is loyal to the crown in terms of needing assistance, not just temporary, but long-term assistance. So the Crown is lending Georgia arms to fight in their war against the Creek Indian Nation. So the good news, though, is that uh, for William Few is that he arrives to Georgia around 1776. And by 1776, folks, Georgia is in a much better place than they were two years earlier. It, it had nothing to do with William Few, but that's not to say that William Few will go on to play a vital role 
during the War for Independence as well as by the time the Constitutional Convention takes place, but another fellow Georgian whom I will discuss um, here in a little bit again as well, but I will mention his name now, Lyman Hall. And why is Lyman Hall important? Well, I discussed him last year when discussing signing their lives away. Lyman Hall was the man who dragged Georgia into the um, discussion for independence. He went above and beyond to get his fellow Georgian, his fellow Georgians to understand that, hey, living under the crown is no longer fun. Living under the crown is no longer the norm. After all, the crown has passed legislation not that may not impact us, but it's impacted our fellow brothers to the north, most notably Massachusetts, with those infamous intolerable acts, a.k.a. coercive acts. So really, if it weren't for Lyman Hall going above and beyond, Georgia may never have sent delegates in the end whom signed the Declaration of Independence. So as for uh, William Few, as I said earlier, he arrives to Georgia around 1776, but it's not until 1778 when he begins seeing heavy-duty military action. And 1778 is the year that the British decide to move their forces southward and begin the southern strategy. Well, one of William's duties was to protect, which he did, he helped uh, protect along with successfully fending off British forces around Georgia's southeastern border, closer to present-day Florida. So in other words, he was able to keep um, the British, he and other fellow um, Georgians and others who perhaps came southward, like say from the Carolinas or, or Virginia, were able to work together um, as a cohesive unit in keeping the British from penetrating further northward into uh, southeastern Georgia and beyond. And of course the southeastern border, uh, most notably between Georgia and Florida, especially along the Georgia line, is Savannah. Well, at the same time that William is uh, involved on his end with um, making the necessary uh, battlefield sacrifices, does he also have a political career once getting established in Georgia? Yes, he does. His political career began a year earlier in 1777 when getting elected to uh, the convention that created Georgia's first constitution. He also got appointed to the state's first legislature to serving on the governor's advisory council. So he's really working his way up the ladder, or rather he's working the ropes to be successful in terms of getting to the top. Did William attend Congress in Philadelphia before uh, the Revolutionary War ended? Yes, he did. Um, and what year do you think he would have gone? Did he go in 1779 or 1780? He went in 1780. He was in. He was up in Philadelphia in, 17, in 1780. He probably got there just before um, the British really uh, started taking full force. And what I mean by that is full force in South Carolina. They've already gotten Savannah, which they did in late 1779. But May of 1780, um, Charleston, South Carolina falls, and the British take over, and then you have the have the onslaught at Camden, where uh, General uh, Charles Cornwallis's forces annihilated uh, Horatio Gates at the Battle of Camden. So, on one hand, it may have been a good thing that William Few arrives to Philadelphia when he did, but at the same time, you've got to wonder what's going through his mind. If the South crumbles. We, uh, we as a nation, will all have to revert back to being subjects to the crown. He probably wasn't the only one of our forefathers thinking that. William would serve again in Congress come 1782 and 1786. And ironically, he served in two bodies while serving as a delegate in Philadelphia to the Constitutional Convention. Besides serving as a delegate in Philadelphia, he was also serving in the Confederation Congress in New York. 
So can you imagine keeping your priorities straight there? That's a lot of um, juggling to do back and forth, north and south, I should say. What kind of government did William Few advocate while in Philadelphia, 1787? Did he advocate for a strong or a weak central government? He advocated for a strong central government that gave the national government immense broad powers, like the power to tax, to maintaining an army and navy, to regulating commerce, just to name a few of the government's broad powers. William Few would go on to serve as one of Georgia's first U.S. Senators. In 1788, he got married to Catherine Nicholson of New York. Interesting. You know, it's one thing for a, for a man to get married or for a woman to get married, but sometimes we have to remember even in colonial, in colonial days, husband and wife weren't always from the same state. And this is a good example right here of... Um, William Few, um, you know, he was originally from Maryland, one of the middle colonies, but he marries a northerner, Catherine Nicholson of New York. I should also point out this, that William Few became a founding trustee to the University of Georgia in Athens in 1785. For those of you who are from Georgia and are University of Georgia grads, I thought you all would like to know that information in case you didn't know. Well, given that we already learned earlier that Georgia was the first southern state to ratify the U.S. Constitution, my next question to you all is this. Did Georgia ratify the U.S. Constitution? In set, was Georgia the first state to ratify the U.S. Constitution in 1788? The answer is yes. Georgia ratified the document, believe it or not, folks, on January the 2nd of that year. And as a matter of fact, um, I, I want to say, let me think here, Massachusetts ratified a month later in February of 1788, and then we had a, um, a what do you call it, a, a break in between where it wouldn't be until April, where, um, where Maryland um, ratified. So there, were, uh, there was a break in between, but... Uh, Georgia was the first state to ratify the U.S. Constitution in 1788. Kudos to them. Now, would William and his wife live anywhere else north of Georgia? You know, once it's easy to think once a, a couple has gotten themselves settled somewhere that they wouldn't want to leave anywhere else. They wouldn't want to go anywhere else, rather. But it turns out that William and his wife decide that they do go north of Georgia. Well, do they go north to North Carolina? Do they go north to Maryland, where he originally hailed from? Or do they go to New York, where his wife is originally from? Believe it or not, folks, they go all the way to New York, where Catherine, his wife, originally hailed from. And William pursued a new career, rather a new public service venture that included practicing law, along with serving as president of the City Bank of New York. And you know why this, that's uh, important to know, folks? Because the pre because City Bank of New York, its predecessor being present-day Citigroup. Small world there, to say the least. And William Few would spend the rest of his life uh, living in New York until he died on July 16, 1828, at the age of 80. To have lived to have been 80 years of age back then, folks, that was considered old age. I mean, living to be 80 today might still be considered old, but it was unheard of even back in the uh, early 19th century. He died in, at age 80 on July 16, 1828, and as the authors have described him, being Denise Kiernan and Joseph Diagnest signing their rights away, they gave him a very fitting title as the following, the signer who lived the American dream. In other words, he didn't come, he didn't start out with a whole lot. We might even consider now that he may have been poor, although it was not officially labeled as William Few being poor, but he came from humble background, and yet he worked his way up to the top. He may not have been the richest man, 
but he worked his way up into so many different um, venues that he really became a very well-respected man. Before we get to our um, next delegate, I'll ask you all this question here. Did any of Georgia's four delegates not sign the U.S. Constitution? Well, I mean, we have learned from other podcasts where in some of the states, they may have sent, like Maryland and Delaware, sent five delegates, but it turns out that um, three out of Maryland's five delegates signed, whereas the other two didn't. So let me ask you again, did, do, you, do any of you all think that, Georgia's, that Georgia had delegates who went to Philadelphia but yet didn't sign the Constitution? Yes, uh, two out of four didn't sign. Uh, one delegate left early to go back home and tend to, a personal, to, and tend to personal affairs on his farm, whereas the other delegate wasn't up for erasing the Articles of Confederation. In other words, it was probably just too overwhelming for him, and maybe it was just best that he left because uh, if he didn't like it at all, what's the point in staying and creating an unnecessary ruckus? So our second delegate um, is none other than um, Abraham Baldwin. Abraham Baldwin, folks, is another interesting um, man that I um, that is really worth sharing um, about. Well, for starters, let me ask you this: Was Abraham Baldwin born? Was he born in a northern state, a middle state, or a southern state? He was born in a northern state. However, uh, he was born on November 22, 1754, just a few years shy of when the French and Indian War breaks out. That northern state he was born in was Connecticut. He hailed from Guilford, Connecticut. He was the son of a blacksmith who was a widower. Okay? When we hear of someone being a widower, that is a man who has lost his wife, whereas a widow is a woman who has lost her husband. But Abraham Baldwin is the son of a blacksmith who was a widower to 12 children. That's a lot of children, folks, and here you are. It doesn't make a difference whether you know, there's a widow to 12 children or a widower to 12 children. It is an enormous burden for that um, surviving parent to take on. But William, but Abraham's father, despite being a widower to 12 children, he went tirelessly above and beyond to see to it that all his children got a quality education. What does that tell you right there for someone being a blacksmith? That they too had potential to live the American dream, even if they weren't of um, upper class status or made of money, they still found the way to go above and beyond to fulfill not only their dreams, but that of their children's and ensuring that their children were not left behind. What opportunity came Abraham's way at age 13? So if he's born in 1754, he would be 13 years of age by around 1767. 1767, when I think of that year, I think of Parliament's passage of those infamous Townshend duties, or the Townshend Acts, where Parliament placed uh, duties on lead, paper, paint, tea, glass as a means of taxing the colonists. So, at age 13, Abraham Baldwin, the opportunity that comes knocking on his door that he seizes upon is um, by going off to Yale College. Remember, folks, Yale is not Yale University in 1767. It is Yale College, where he studies theology. And, of course, we all know what theology is. That's the study. It's a study of religion, study of becoming a minister or preacher. While at Yale, he becomes a member of the Lenonian Society. I found this to be interesting about the Lenonian Society. When I think of societies at Yale, there's always one that comes to my mind, and it probably comes to many others. Skull and Bones, you know, that's a very, very top secret society. And, and by being in Skull and Bones, you do have to perform 
requirements that involve giving, not just so much giving back to your alma mater, being Yale, but giving back to uh, Skull and Bones itself. But um, the Lenonian Society was a literary and debating society that was established in 1753, one year before Abraham was born. And if I thought Skull and Bones was the oldest secret society at Yale University, I, I was wrong. I learned that the, that the Lenonian Society was just so happened to be one of Yale's oldest secret societies. Never hurts to learn something new, even if it's an odd fact. After graduating from Yale in 1772, Abraham remained at the college where he went about tutoring other students. So, uh, where did Abraham Baldwin lend his hand during the Revolutionary War? Was it by was it being out on the battlefield, or would or was it lending a hand um, being that would pertain to medicine, or did it, it revolve around lending a hand? Um, with um, with his background in theology. Well, choice C, with his background in theology. He served as a chaplain, most notably the various Connecticut regiments led by General Nathaniel Green, who would eventually one day be the head commander for the Southern Continental Army. And thank heavens he came when he did, uh, especially after General Horatio Gates left in disgrace after the whole debacle at Camden, South Carolina, October of 1780. Nathaniel Green would go on to earn a nice nickname as the Fighting Quaker. But yes, um, Abraham Baldwin uh, served as a chaplain to various Connecticut regiments led by General Nathaniel Green. And he also had a brief stint under General George Washington's command while the Continental Army was encamped, or rather stationed, at Morristown, New Jersey. It's fair to say that uh, Abraham Baldwin served under some of the best uh, leaders throughout the American Revolutionary War. After the war ended, though, Baldwin was offered a high-level job as a professor of theology at Yale, but he declined. Okay? If he has a degree in theology, what was he doing, perhaps, in his spare time? Well, he, he had a little passion on the side for law. So he would, during his spare time, he would be actually reading law books. Hey, you can't go wrong with that as long as it's something relevant and constructive. So he decided instead to focus his studies on law in come uh, 1783, two years after the British surrender at Yorktown, the same year that um, the Treaty of Paris gets negotiated, formally ending the American Revolutionary War. That year, 1783, Abraham Baldwin got admitted to the Connecticut State Bar. See, folks, good things do happen, even if it means um, engaging in a career switch. Did Abraham uh, Baldwin have success uh, practicing law in Connecticut? Well, you know, it's one thing to be a lawyer, but we've got to still constantly remind ourselves in colonial America, regardless of the state that you lived in, being a lawyer was not an easy job. And there was competition left and right. I mentioned it from the previous night, uh, Charles Pinckney, John Rutledge, those two men um, had to travel uh, what we call riding, probably rode the circuit. They went to neighboring counties to uh, pick up new business. They couldn't uh, keep all their eggs in one basket by uh, representing just one jurisdiction, a.k.a. one county. Very few lawyers struck gold right away. I mean, John Rutledge was one of those unique exceptions, but uh, as for Abraham Baldwin, he loved being a lawyer, but as for having long-term success with practicing law in Connecticut, it simply wasn't meant to be, in part due to widespread competition amongst um, many lawyers. That is, you know, a number of lawyers in the same vicinity that he was practicing law in. There, were, there was just a lot of competition to the point where Baldwin himself got persuaded by prominent men like Gen General Nathaniel Green, along with fellow Yale alumnus and Declaration of Independence signer Lyman Hall, whom I mentioned earlier, who's now down in Georgia. These two men, for example, in encouraged um, 
Baldwin to start a new life down south. Basically, uh, Abraham Baldwin is becoming now another uh, Yankee transplant coming southward. Now, of course, when we think of uh, Georgia, we all know the capital of Georgia is Atlanta. It's been in, it's been in Atlanta for some time. As a matter of fact, I learned some years back that Atlanta got its name after the uh, Atlantica Pacifica Railroad that came through Georgia. But of course, when Georgia is first established as a colony, its uh, capital is Savannah. But what is Georgia's capital before and after Abraham Baldwin's arrival to the state? Is it west of Savannah, or is the city uh, north of Savannah? The answer is choice B, north of Savannah. The capital of Georgia at this time is in Augusta. Of course, when I think of Augusta, I think of the Masters Golf Tournament that's, that's held every April down in Augusta, Georgia. So that's where Georgia's capital was uh, just before and after the American Revolutionary War ended. Did Abraham Baldwin marry? No. Uh, it turns out he was one of three men whom attended the Constitutional Convention as a bachelor, and he remained a bachelor for the rest of his life. Two other men being Nicholas Gilman of New Hampshire and Daniel of St. Thomas Jennifer of Maryland were the other two men in attendance whom were uh, bachelors for the rest of their lives. What contribution did Abraham Baldwin have while attending the 1787 convention in Philadelphia? Was it a big contribution? Oh, you better believe it was. Well, for starters, the matter at stake involved a lot of delegates who were pretty much deadlocked over how representation in the Senate would play out. In other words, you have small states and then you got big states. The small states are very worried that the big states are going to, they already know that for one, the, that the big states are going to have more representation based on their population, but at the same time, they are worried that the small states like New Jersey, Maryland, and Delaware are, automa are very worried that, um, that they will pretty much be left out. They won't have a voice in anything. And of course, that's where William Patterson came up with the New Jersey plan, which was simply a plan that said one vote regardless of the state size. Everybody would have an equal vote. Well, it came down to Abraham Baldwin. Everybody else is deadlocked. But Abraham Baldwin has a choice. It's one of those make-or-break choices that could, you know, that pretty much can change the course of events. But he broke the deadlock amongst the delegates over representation in the Senate, and his vote enabled Roger Sherman's Great Compromise plan to become a reality, where representation in the House would be, would be determined by the population of each state, whereas all states, regardless of their size, got an equal number of senators. And what I mean by equal number of senators, folks, how many? Two. So, okay, New Jersey, smaller than Virginia, Virginia, larger than New Jersey. Regardless of the size, they each, both states get two senators, just like the, uh, the other 11 states get. So at, in the year after the Constitution was signed by the delegates in Philadelphia, uh, 1788, saw Abraham Baldwin assist a fellow Virginia by the name of Mr. James Madison, a.k.a. father of the Constitution, and would go on to also have an honorary title of father of the Bill of Rights. Abraham Baldwin assisted James Madison in helping draw up the Bill of Rights in committee. 1788 was also good for Baldwin besides assisting Madison in drawing up the Bill of Rights and that Baldwin got elected to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives and he would serve in the U.S. Senate from 1798 until his death in 1807. He would also serve as the President Pro Tempore of the U.S. Senate in the, at the start, right after the start of the 19th century. 
meaning that he was second in line to the vice president. So if the vice president wasn't on duty to either break a tie or just preside over meetings, the Senate meetings on the floor, uh, Abraham Baldwin had that um, distinction by um, presiding over, um, over anything that required his presence. Was Baldwin an ardent advocate uh, behind education? I think it's fair to say that a lot of our forefathers were ardent advocates behind education. But what about Abraham Baldwin? Yes. And it just so turns out that Abraham Baldwin went on to become the first president to the University of Georgia, where he held this post until 1800. The University of Georgia was established in 1785. Five years before uh, Daniel Carroll's uh, brother, John, uh, founded uh, Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Four years before the University of North Carolina was established, where um, Richard Dobbs Spate um, was um, not only not only was he governor, but he had served um, on the um, University of North Carolina Chapel Hill's uh, board. So it is fair to say that many of our forefathers were heavily involved, not just in, in uh, what do you call it, supporting the ideas of higher education, but were involved in getting state chartered schools established. You know, the University of Georgia and Yale University have, have, a, have the same school mascot name. For those of you who are Georgia fans or Georgia grads, you know that your school's mascot is the Bulldog. Well, Yale University, their school mascot is a Bulldog. This can be, and it also turns out that uh, Yale, that the University of Georgia, when it was first uh, built, its earliest buildings resembled the architecture of Yale University or Yale College's uh, buildings. And this could all be attributed to Yankee implants like Lyman Hall and Abraham Baldwin, whom originally hailed from Connecticut. It pays to have connections, north and south. March 4, 1807, uh, Abraham Baldwin died at the age of 52. He is buried at Rock Creek Cemetery in Washington, D.C. Ironically, there are two counties, one in Georgia and one in Alabama, named after him, Baldwin County. You also have a college in Tifton, Georgia, outside of Albany, called Abraham Baldwin Agricultural College. You know, here again, this man, we can say, just like William Few, he lived the American dream. You know, here his father was left to uh, raise 12 children on his own, but yet his father saw to it that Abraham and his siblings still made a life for themselves. And Abraham did. You know, Georgia may have been the, one of the most, one of the more remote colonies. And yes, Georgia may have been an outcast in 1774 when she didn't send any delegates to Philadelphia for the First Continental Congress. But Georgia, it didn't take Georgia long to get on the right track, especially as I mentioned from earlier about Lyman Hall's leadership. But it's also fair to say that Georgia's leadership was um, enhanced by outsiders, outsiders who saw what potential the state had. But I think it's fair to say that outsiders came to all of the states, and, and not just came to the states, but um, brought potential to each state. Well, we've uh, covered a lot of ground tonight, and I look forward to being back on the air again, uh, like I always do with all of you, my faithful uh, 101 History Podcast listeners. And when I'm back on the air again next, we're going to uh, discuss a very, very unique surprise. Because many of you all are wondering about one state in particular that may not have gotten mentioned earlier. But of course, if I tell it to you all now, there probably wouldn't be a need to have a podcast episode on it. But it's one of those things that needs to be discussed because, you know, we may have, met, we may have learned some things about it in the past, but we may not have gotten the whole nine yards. In other words, the whole story behind why this particular state um, didn't do what it was originally supposed to have done all along. 
Well, thank you again, and um, if you know of anybody out there who wants the podcast, you just tell them to come to Anchor. It's free. The opportunities are limitless, and the results go beyond the sky ceiling. I know I've said that a lot of times, maybe a million times at best, but hey, if you've got something good going, keep that phrase going, because people will come, and I already know they are coming, because I've gotten over 9,400 plays, so that tells me right there that you all are staying the course and listening to what I'm sharing with you all because it's relevant, it's educational, and you can pass it along to other people who are anxious to want to know more about history that they have learned but didn't learn the whole nine yards on. After all, with all that's going on in the world today, we need to stay as educated as possible. Yes, the past isn't always present, or the past isn't always pleasant, rather, but we do have to learn about it. And while, yes, our forefathers faced tough situations, yes, they may have had to come to compromises on sensitive matters like slavery, which I mentioned from the previous night with John Rutledge and how Rutledge uh, and many of the other forefathers agreed to outlaw the slave trade uh, 20 years after the Constitution was signed. The bottom line is they lived through trying times, and yet they still managed to find common ground, and, and, at, the, and at the end of the day, they walked away knowing that they did produce something, something that that they would still be in awe of, knowing that it's still alive 233 years later, even though the Constitution has seen some dark moments in our nation's history, especially like with what happened on January 6th. The bottom line is, is that um, we can't erase our past, but we can still appreciate the compromises that our forefathers made. We don't. We may not have to like everything about it, but let's just be thankful, folks, that for all of us who live in the United States, please be thankful that we live, that we have a democracy, that we can wake up each morning knowing that we don't have to live in fear of a, of a coup. I mean, we, we have to be vigilant still, knowing that the world we live in now is not the same world that we lived in when, it, when say, Ronald Reagan was president. But, but we are very thankful. We ought to be thankful that we uh, live in a country where we have the oldest Republican governing document in existence. We. We don't have to worry about our government being overthrown, although we have to be vigilant that we do not repeat the same mistakes that um, happened on January the 6th that could have been beyond disastrous, beyond going beyond the sky ceiling. So, for those of you, again, thank you for listening. Please keep the flame alive. Keep the torch alive. Keep this beacon of light alive, and that history itself may not be extinguished. Thank you again for listening. God bless and stay safe.